Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Rooftop, another episode of our podcast. And this is a really special one. You know, from time to time, we um, we have some really special guests, um, guests that are able to come on the show and, and talk about and offer perspective on a range of, of national and international issues. And today is, is certainly no exception. You all know um, where I stand on Afghanistan and and our relationship with them over the years and, and how I feel about the abandonment that happened. And I know many of you listening and watching feel the same way. And I made a commitment when all of this happened that I would um, I would never miss an opportunity to give a voice to true Afghan leadership when the opportunity presents itself, particularly when those voices could could be heard much more than what they are and they need to be heard more. So uh, in this election year of 2024, I thought it was extremely appropriate uh, that we uh, invite from the embassy and permanent mission of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan in Vienna, Austria, um, Madam Ambassador H.E. Manisha Bakhari. Um, gave it a good run there, Ambassador. That's it's. I'll keep practicing. Um, but she is a diplomat, a lecturer, and author. Uh, she was formerly Afghanistan's ambassador to Nordic countries 2009 to 2015, and she served as the chief of staff of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Kabul uh, from 2007 to 2009. Um, a couple other things about the ambassador prior to her diplomatic career, she was renowned for her work on gender advocacy in the nonprofit sector. And we're going to talk about that some today, uh, namely with the Cooperation Center for Afghanistan during her time there. And she traveled across Afghanistan, um, aiming to implement global gender equality standards and raise awareness. She received her bachelor's degree uh, in journalism from Kabul University and her master's degree from the university's uh, Persian literature department. And she also served as a lecturer at her alma mater. Um, she's published hundreds of academic and journalistic articles, as well as seven academic books. That is a that is a lot, Madam Ambassador. Welcome to the show, and and thank you for being on the Rooftop Podcast. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Scott, uh, for having me. Indeed, uh, it's it's a pleasure to talk to you and to your audience. Thank you, and let's just get right into it. I would love to, and I know my audience would love to just learn a little bit about you. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your story um, and um, just your backstory and, and, and growing up and, and, and how you came to, to be in the positions that, that I just read about and, and where you are today? Uh, well, um, uh, where I kind of start about myself, I was born in Kabul city, the capital of Afghanistan and uh, my family was and is an open-minded family. My father is a well-known person in Afghanistan and many people know him and respect him. Unfortunately, he passed away last year. Uh, I had, I have uh, two sisters and um, we didn't have a brother and that made a little bit our life difficult in Kabul city where, uh, I mean, in Afghanistan where it was like a, a patriarchal order was uh, on set. Uh, but anyway, uh, I had the opportunity to um, study and complete my education. 
uh, for some time. Uh, I I was a lecturer uh, at Kabul University and uh, at the same time holding a part-time position with one of Afghanistan's NGOs that you already uh, called the Cooperation Center for Afghanistan. And actually, I have got a lot of knowledge there and with that NGO in terms of uh, women's rights, human rights, and uh, gender balance. And uh, through the time I became the uh, chief of uh, gender section uh, at that uh, organization. And um, I joined the Foreign Service in 2007. Uh, and after that, I had uh, two diplomatic uh, tenure, one in Norway, as you uh, mentioned and right now I'm serving as Afghanistan's ambassador to uh, Austria and uh, through um, throughout my career I have authored actually uh, 10 different books uh, and okay. uh, just recently I published my my uh, one of my novels wow. and uh, the same time um, I, I have been advocating for the rights of women in Afghanistan. Uh, that subject has always been a cause dear to my heart. Uh, and um, it's worth mentioning that in 2016, I decided to resign from the Foreign Service. Uh, however, in 2020, the then Foreign Minister called me back to serve and I, I accepted the opportunity. As of January 2021, uh, I assumed the role of Ambassador in Diana. Wonderful. And I guess I, the first question that I want to ask, because I think a lot of our audience members will be surprised that there there are some very unique things about the post that you hold right now. Um, you know, the the role of ambassador uh, from the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan has, has certainly altered since the, the, you know, the initial collapse in 2021. Tell us a little bit about your post uh, in Austria and what makes it unique. Uh, yeah, well, um, uh, the responsibilities of an Afghan ambassador were not, uh, I mean, significantly different from those of other diplomats before the recent political change and takeover. Uh, however, for the Afghan ambassadors right now who do not support the Taliban, the tasks have uh, undergone a substantial transformation, <laughs> as right. you know, and despite this, uh, um, uh, it has impacted our daily routine. Uh, uh, though not to the extent that uh, uh, to prevent uh, to prevent us from fulfilling certain aspects of our uh, duties. Anyway, of course, after the uh, Afghanistan's collapse and Taliban's takeover, my rule has been chained. And right now, um, uh, so I would say that my rule involves uh, representing Afghanistan in conferences and meetings at the UN office in Vienna, uh, at the OEC, the Organization of Security and Cooperation of Europe and actually I'm very active at the OEC and also maintaining uh, bilateral relations with Austria, uh, participating in events organized by civil society and the Austrian uh, parliament and at the same time fostering connections with uh, individuals there. 
Um, in particular, I have uh, transferred my uh, mission into a hub and a platform for raising awareness and advocating for women's rights in Afghanistan. And this um, additional focus aligns with the broader goal of promoting gender equality, which has always been uh, a goal for me, and um, also addressing the challenges faced by women in my country. And uh, so, um, uh, naturally, part of my responsibilities also include effectively managing my office. Uh, a while ago, I had a meeting with the uh, Austrian parliament and there I told them that it might look like a joke that uh, when I uh, started my job as Afghanistan's ambassadors, I was fostering and promoting uh, bilateral relations. And after the collapse, I uh, tried to convince everyone not to uh, connect with the Taliban and not to recognize the Taliban. Right. Uh, so right. <laughs> right now, I would say that the uniqueness of my current position lies in my role as a lobbyist against the de facto authority in the country. And I don't know whether that happened before in the history of diplomacy or not, but that's what I'm doing <laughs> uh, right now. And despite the... Uh, challenges posed uh, by the change political landscape. I'm actively engaged in advocating of causes that align with my objectives and um, uh, uh, specifically um, my focus on lobbying against the de facto authority adds a distinct dimension to my responsibilities as an ambassador and I'm emphasizing uh, my commitment to principles such as human rights, um, inclusivity and uh, uh, promotions of uh, women's rights in Afghanistan because that is um, right now actually that is the uh, very main thing for me to advocate and to lobby for women's rights in Afghanistan. Yes, and I, I just appreciate so much you you clarifying this for us. And you know, you're you're very humble, uh, but when you when you say that it's probably never been done in history, I think you're probably right. I mean, I think the fact that you are standing up against the Taliban as 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 you know, and and asking you know other countries not to support them and doing that from a minister you know from a, from from a mission post, I just think is is unbelievable and and extremely brave and i know it can't be easy um but but i also understand fully that a lot of this has to you know has to do with your passion for gender equality and and the things that that need to be addressed there can you talk a little bit about where things were going with your work and for example gender equality before the collapse and then contrast them to where they are now in afghanistan in a post-Taliban takeover, for, for particularly for women? Uh, so um, you see that um, the, uh, you can see like a uh, severe contrast between Afghanistan's yesterday and Afghanistan's today. And uh, it indicates a, a significant deterioration in women's rights in Afghanistan uh, following the Taliban's takeover. I'm not saying that before the Taliban, everything was perfect and we had a garden of flowers and we had butter and milk and everything was all right. But at least we were on the right path and we were struggling to find our ways to promote gender equality in Afghanistan. Anyway, the situation right now suggests that women are facing severe restrictions, including being deprived of education. And actually, Afghanistan is the only country who officially bans their 
half of population from uh, official uh, from former uh, studies. Um, our women have lost their jobs and being banned from public spaces like parks and sport clubs and other uh, public places. And uh, uh, the fact that um, families with female uh, breadwinners are particularly affected, and that highlights the broader economic impact of these restrictions. You can just imagine like a family with a, a female leader who do not have a male member in their family. So how they can survive? What what they should do and well if the Taliban do not allow women to work so what is the solution for those families there is no solution for that we do not have a welfare system that they provide them with some uh, cash or with some other uh, uh, living materials so there is no solution for that and uh, you see that um, uh, after uh, the Taliban takeover actually they have uh, issued more than uh, 50 decrease that systematically limit women's uh, participation in society and that uh, further underscores the extent of the restrictions and the um, you know the enforcement of the risk codes such as the requirement for her job leading to the arrest of women who do not comply and that adds to the concerns about personal freedoms and individual rights and that just now, just now, we uh, we are witnessing uh, hundreds of reports about the arrest of women and young girls uh, on the streets of Kabul for not having the proper hijab. And as I see those short clips in the social media, I see that they actually they have proper uh, clothing. They have all uh, covered with a black kind of tent or hijab or whatsoever and still they take them to the prisons and um, they detain them they uh, prosecute them and they beat them and that is something intolerable. Um, uh, as per one uh, report you see that uh, um, there are around 800 women and young girls uh, in their uh, presence and describing uh, the situation as a form of gender-based persecution and gender apartheid uh, emphasizes the severity of the challenges that women in Afghanistan currently face. I need to label that as gender apartheid because it's important to have a definition for the atrocities that the Taliban are implementing in Afghanistan. If we do not label that and if we do not have a name and a description and definition, then how we can hold the Taliban accountable. And um, it's uh, essential to stay informed about the uh, evolving situation and monitor international responses to address the human rights uh, violations in Afghanistan because that is one of that severe kind of uh, human rights and women's rights violation in all the earth. Yes, I, I first of all agree with you and and then and then I, I appreciate you framing the problem as gender apartheid and, and I, I give you my word that we will use that language as well going forward on our platforms and everything that we can do to um, demand accountability and action on this. But I guess one of the things I'm confused about, I just, I just can't, I just don't understand. And maybe you can help me with it, but there, you would think that something as significant as that, as, as, as atrocious as that, that there would be a much greater public outcry from the international community around gender apartheid. But yet it seems to me that, I don't know if it's because it's Afghanistan, 
or because maybe some people don't want to be involved after 20 years of fighting there. I, I don't know. But it just seems to me that as horrific as this is, there are very few people talking about it in, in, in the international community, in the gender advocacy space. And I don't understand it. Do, do you have, I mean, am I right? And if so, what do we do about that? Uh, you are very right. Uh, uh, throughout my work in the past two years, I have seen so many conferences and seminars. That they are talking about gender balance, about uh, uh, human rights, women rights, and they do not even mention once Afghanistan. And I'm there, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, what is going on in this world? Uh, well, uh, I mean, like, um, uh, um, uh, that is uh, a view that the people of Afghanistan currently lack the leverage to voice their requests and uh, wishes effectively. You know, like, we do not have that leverage now. But despite this, I uh, urge not to abandon Afghanistan that way. And uh, you see, um, uh, uh, that is very significant. Uh, allow me to share a personal story that highlights the challenges faced by Afghan girls right now. A friend's uh, daughter in Afghanistan, uh, whom I uh, have the privilege to know, only 12 years old, and is um, and she's in grade six, and she was an excellent student. However, uh, this year she deliberately failed when her parents questioned her about the uh, unexpected result because she always been number one in her school. She explained that she wanted to continue attending the school for another year. And she deliberately failing uh, because she wanna stay, another, she wanna go for another year to school because you know in Afghanistan, girls cannot go after grade six. So that is why she tried to be a failure only to go for another year to school. And this narrative uh, underscores again the length of which young Afghan girls are willing to go for the chance of education amid uh, uncertain circumstances. And uh, you uh, just um, uh, noticed one important thing, Afghanistan fatigue. And actually that Afghanistan fatigue uh, created an environment or circumstances that uh, some nations and some countries, they are just like, oh, well, we, we have been in Afghanistan for 20 years. Uh, we paid the ultimate prices. We spent millions of dollars. And right now, what is the cost to go back to an Afghanistan? And there is no appetite to go back to Afghanistan. And of course, I understand that. And we do not urge any nation to come back to Afghanistan. However, I believe that that's a shared responsibility to tackle and to address gender apartheid and uh, uh, gender prosecution in Afghanistan. Because it is not something related only to Afghanistan. Women's issue is women issues in all over the world. And one cannot talk about uh, human rights declaration uh, not applying that to Afghanistan because we should consider the universality of human rights declaration and that uh, applies uh, everywhere. Unfortunately, that is the situation and that's why not only um, myself, but a big group of women and young girls are working, uh, whether they are in Afghanistan or they are out of Afghanistan, to raise this awareness and to tell uh, and to emphasize that uh, we need to collectively address this issue in Afghanistan. Extremely well said. I, I, the only thing I would, I would add to what you just said is, you know, when, 
when we left Afghanistan the way that we did, we being NATO and the United States, uh, I had been retired for a while, but I will tell you, it it was it was a it was a it was like a punch in the, it was like and it was like a punch in the gut. It was like a, it was like someone kicking you in the stomach um, because, you know, for many of us, we we spent a lot of years there and we, we we built a lot of friendships there and we 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 bled there and we lost a lot of our friends there. Many of them were Afghans, but many of them were our brothers too. And you know, one of the things that I've heard over and over again, Madam Ambassador, and I think you should know this, is that when I talk to my friends who are very, very distraught veterans over the way that we left and over the way that this went, you know, one of the things that they always say is, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is that we 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 held space as best we could so that girls could go to school and and that things could could start to change over there you know and that may not i don't know I, that may or may not surprise you but i will tell you that is a that is a comment i hear a lot from veterans across the country who they take a lot of pride and they have a lot of uh, love for the work that you and others have done to bravely, you know, advance gen- gender equality, and and they see how painful it is to have gone backwards, and 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 I, I just want you to know that there are a lot of us in the veteran community who not only support what you're saying, but feel very strongly that this is a is a joint responsibility. There is a universality to it, and we have a moral obligation to. Because because we fought for that moral obligation, you know, we experienced it and, and we were, were proud of it. We're proud of what was advanced and moved forward. And like you said, it was far from perfect. And we created a lot of problems, too, you know, while we were there. And, and, and that's the truth. But one of the things that I, I do take a lot of pride in is, is that there was a true effort to do the kind of things that you've done. And I, I just... I wonder what it will take to wake people up to this reality because this is a, this is a very dark thing if we don't address it. Uh, exactly. I couldn't agree more with you and uh, that um, um, I, I, I'm so happy to hear this, that your people thinking about uh, Afghan people and about uh, the suffering of our women. And, and that is a joint responsibility that really uh, makes my heart uh, warm. And uh, I also expressed my disappointment regarding the way the United States left Afghanistan and the way U.S. conducted the so-called peace talks and agreements with the Taliban. And actually, I believe that peace still was one of the contributors of the Taliban's takeover. I'm not uh, uh, denying or um, uh, the, the fact that the United States and other international friends in Afghanistan uh, have made a significant change and transformation in the country. And of course, you made the space for millions of girls to go to school, for thousands of women to have uh, uh, high-level jobs in the government and non-governmental organizations. And I always uh, appreciate uh, that efforts. But at the same time, let me show my disappointment as well, because that was our collective achievements. And we should have, we shouldn't 
uh, have lost all those uh, joint achievements. We should have kept all that together. And unfortunately, uh, everything was ruined like a house of court. And that, uh, um, that's very disappointing, very disappointing. Uh, but what can, uh, what can we do? Um, uh, I mean, like, um, I already, uh, said about Afghanistan fatigue, but I want to warn against uh, that Afghanistan fatigue and emphasizing, uh, that fatigue, uh, potentially could, uh, affect or impact the region and the world, because if right now you do not have the appetite to address Afghanistan's issues, that issue might be bigger and bigger, and that impacts the region and all the world. And uh, uh, another thing, uh, I don't know whether it's, uh, I, I actually, I'm uh, 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 forgotten what was your question, but let me uh, just add another concern, another big concern that I have, and that concern extends uh, to the Taliban's actions in uh, replacing uh, schools with mattresses. Uh, so I, I, um, I read a report, uh, from Afghanistan's media that the, since the Taliban takeover, they have built, um, 7,000 new madrasas in the country. And we do not need those madrasas. Afghanistan has been an Islamic country and all the families, they teach their children how to be a Muslim and how to read Quran, how to do prayings. And we do not need that, uh, extent of, uh, uh, number of um, uh, schools in Afghanistan. And you know, uh, not only that, they have uh, altered the curriculum data and uh, that potentially fostering extremism in, in the young generation. And now I feel that the young generation of Afghanistan are leaning towards Talibanism and towards extremism. And that points, uh, this actually, this points to uh, broader consequences that may result from such uh, shifts in education policy. And my plea is for um, attention and collective uh, actions to prevent um, this outcomes on a global scale. What if we have millions of extremists in Afghanistan in the uh, next 10 years? And that is something very important and we should address that today, not tomorrow, just today. Yes, it's so well said. And there's several things that you say here that I want to uh, kind of unpack a little bit. And, you know, one of the things is I think you and I both share uh, a very high level of disappointment in the U.S. and to some degree NATO's policy to depart and the way they departed. I also share, uh, share with you the uh, the disappointment in the Doha agreement and the way that was done. Uh, it was it was. To me, it's so obvious that that when you make an agreement like that and you exclude the Afghan government, there's only one way that can end, and it and it ended exactly the way um, it would. And I actually testified to the House Foreign Affairs Committee to the full committee, and I'll ask Legend to share that testimony with you. But I, I said many of the things that you're saying to to our Congress as a veteran that the policy decisions were atrocious; they were terrible, and and they not only were they just bad decisions, but they do have a regional and global uh, implication, multiple implications, not just, uh, and I'm not diminishing gender apartheid, it, it is terrible. But as you alluded to, what brought America to Afghanistan in the first place was the manifestation of violent extremism on 9-11-2001, 
that emanated from terror safe havens in the rural areas of Afghanistan that emanated from madrasas along the, you know, the border. And I think you're right. I think that this does potentially offer a, a, a new level of extremism that's going to find its way into the West. And I guess maybe I would ask you to talk a little bit about that. What are you seeing or hearing about the, the emergence of violent extremism inside Afghanistan? And, and what would you tell people in the West that they should be paying attention to? Uh, so, uh, you know, let me start from this point that um, in a diplomatic area of Kabul city, uh, Emin al-Zawairi, sure that you know him, was discovered and killed only a few months after the Taliban assumed control, right? And that's a fact. I'm not making that. Right. So what, what that tells us, just a few months after the Taliban's takeover, they found Emin al-Zawairi, the head of Al-Qaeda in Kabul city in a very safe diplomatic area. So that is a signal, that is a warning to, to, to the world. And, uh, um, you know, um, this uh, development raises concerns about the Taliban hosting uh, international terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda, uh, Tariq Islami of Uzbekistan, uh, the Tajikistan Ansarullah, TTP, and many more. And, uh, well, I, I do not have access to um, very accurate media reports, as you know, because we do not have free media right now in Afghanistan, and the media has been controlled by the Taliban for the past two years. But still here, there, we listen to some reports, we read some reports that it says that, especially in the north part of Afghanistan, international terrorists are based, and they are trying to attack Central Asian countries, and there there have been some incidents as well, and uh, as well uh, in 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 the border with the Pakistan, and they are supporting the Tahrik uh, Taliban in Pakistan, and they have that uh, twice with that, and uh, actually that shows us that the Taliban didn't meet their commitments, what they have said in. Uh, Doha agreement, although I'm against that Doha agreement, but at least they should have met some of their commitments, right. there, but they, they, they don't. So I see that Afghanistan is, is right now is potentially a safe place, a safe haven for international terrorists. And not only that, they are trying to raise and train uh, the next generation of extremists in Afghanistan. And that uh, it's like you know like it's uh, like uh, when someone raises um, uh, a what is called like a strange uh, exotic animal and then that animal turns and eat its creator so uh, you have seen that in many movies uh, many uh, hollywood movies and i see that that might happen in afghanistan as well right now uh, our uh, many of our neighbors are having uh, close contacts and cooperation with the taliban uh, but that extremists will come to their lands as well one day because right now they are working with a terrorist group and i'm wondering that how a terrorist group that all um, uh, international communities were fighting them once. Now they have become uh, like a legitimate, not legitimate in my eyes, but legitimate, legitimate 
the way they are uh, introducing themselves. And that should not be acceptable. And that may create a path for other uh, terrorist groups like uh, Boko Haram or someone else. And they might think that with terror, with attacks with suicides, they may run a government once, you see? And that is that was not a good example for other terrorist groups as well. No, I agree. And, you know, if you think about it, just recently, you've seen uh, ISIS attacks inside Iran. You've mm-hmm. seen uh, TTP attacks against Pakistan, you know, and, and I think you're right. I think this is going to, it's going to spill over. Uh, it certainly has regional implications, but, you know, anytime that violent extremism is allowed to flourish unmolested in a remote area and they have global aspirations. I mean, it's pretty predictable on how that's going to go. Are you finding in the course of your duties, Madam Ambassador, are you finding that for in Western Europe, for example, or in Europe, is there, is there, are people listening? Uh, are people listening to what you have to say or is it is it a fairly difficult uh, lift to get get the message out there? I, I can't imagine. I would imagine it is. But uh, what's a, what's a day in the life like for you trying to get people to pay attention to this? Uh, the experiences I have um, in my capacity as a Palestinian representative in Austria uh, shows me that people listen. People uh, enthusiastically listen to me. And uh, actually, I'm very grateful that I'm based in Vienna, like a place, a hub of democracy and dialogue, and people are very open to listen to you. So then um, I I believe that, yeah, many people, uh, including individuals, they listen to you, they have sympathies with you. But, you know, just listening and uh, showing sympathies and empathies or not, enough for us we need actions and without actions we cannot change the circumstances and i know that uh, when uh, when i'm talking about the situation of afghanistan when i'm talking about women's uh, uh, about the atrocities the taliban uh, are implementing against women so many people are like yeah we know we understand you we are with you but what can we do so what is the solution because right now the world does not have an appetite to go back to Afghanistan. We will not send the force there. So might the change comes within the country? Might you just lobby for the change inside the country and you concentrate on your local forces? I uh, I agree with them, indeed. I agree. But at the same time, the uh, uh, Afghanistan situation is very complex because um, for the past 30 years, uh, several uh, proxy war uh, have been going on in Afghanistan. So it doesn't have only a national implication. It has several regional and international implications. So if we want to address the situation, we need to uh, collect all those elements together and tackle the situation. That is the thing. So what is the solution? Uh, Indeed, I don't have a concrete answer for that, but at least um, we shouldn't stop. We should continue to uh, lobby for human rights and women rights, and we should uh, tell the people what is going on in Afghanistan. And maybe in a couple of years, we change the content of policymakers. 
but yeah. but uh, honestly, my experience in in uh, Austria is great. Um, uh, as I said, that I'm very active in uh, in the organization of uh, uh, security and cooperation of Europe, and almost every month I have a speech there, and the representative of several countries they are um, listening to me, and they are interested on what uh, I'm saying. So that is uh, my my own experiences, and uh, but. I mean, like, that's not enough. We need uh, actions. We need uh, some major uh, steps uh, to do or to bring some changes in the country. Yes, I, I agree. I, 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 and I agree with you. I don't, I don't necessarily know the answer either. However, I do think there are some, some solution steps here. And, and one of them, I don't know, I've only got a couple questions left for you. I know you're very busy, Madam Ambassador, but, but one of the, one of the questions I, I really do feel like I need to ask you is, you know, I, I do several interviews with different constituents who are involved in um, trying to help Afghanistan get to better days. And, and one of them is I've interviewed, of course, legend, but um, I've also interviewed um, Commander Massoud uh, from the National Resistance Front in and, and as well as uh, Ali Nazari and others. And, and we've built, you know, a pretty strong rapport around. Um, but I've also interviewed General Sadat and others who what they share in common is a, is a desire for Afghanistan to resist. And I guess that's what I would like to ask you about is what is your perspective on the resistance in Afghanistan? What do we need to know about it and what needs to happen? Because it seems to me that no matter what the solution is internationally, that a, a coherent, effective, collective resistance in Afghanistan, because the people that I've talked to in the resistance, they're not asking for U.S. boots on the ground. They're not. They're, they're willing to carry the load and they are actively right now as you and I speak. They're, they're, they're fighting and they're carrying the load. But I feel like a lot of people don't know this. They don't understand this. And and so I guess my question to you is, if you can talk about it, is what is your perspective on resistance in Afghanistan and what needs to happen? Uh, so resistance is a must in, in, in Afghanistan. Um, the NRF, um, or the National Resistance Front, uh, stands out at the initial group um, and they bravely oppose the Taliban uh, with many of its members making the ultimate prize by giving their lives in the fight against the Taliban. And I have great respect to Mr. Ahmad Masood because he was the very first person to uh, uh, to build resistance in Afghanistan. And my respect always uh, be there for him, for his uh, braveness and for his courage. And he actually, he is uh, one of the youngest, very, the youngest uh, leader of uh, of the country. And, um, and this um, uh, resilience uh, demonstrates that the people of Afghanistan refuse to remain silent in the face of opposition. And it's crucial to note that the uh, NRF is not alone, uh, not standing alone, and uh, there are several other groups, including the Freedom Front. Uh, different groups have emerged, and they are uh, proving 
uh, to be highly uh, effective in recent months. And yeah, they, um, well, many, many nations and many uh, politicians, they know about the resistance in Afghanistan, but they just want to minimize the resistance in Afghanistan. And they uh, want to just ignore that there is a resistance in Afghanistan. And even um, the Taliban are um, uh, fighting and uh, killing those who are having a relation with the resistance, but when you are making an interview with them, they are just uh, hiding the fact that there is a resistance in Afghanistan and they are saying that we have 100% control of the country and there is no resistance. But I believe there is resistance. There are several forms of resistance in Afghanistan. Political resistance, armed resistance, civil resistance, women's resistance. And um, actually what I'm doing is a resistance and I I called with proud myself as a member of resistance because I'm uh, standing against them. So there are several uh, formats of resistance in the country. But um, yeah, you pointed out a very important uh, thing that we need to mobilize all these forces together. Because right now you see a disfragmentation among the um, uh, powers or political parties who are opposing the Taliban. We need to have like a network a network for that to uh, create a big hub for all those uh, powers and resistance forces and political leaders, uh, young generations, including brave uh, Afghan girls who are uh, every day shouting for their rights on the streets. Uh, th uh, actually, that is what we are lacking right now, but we are working on that. Uh, you might have heard about the ANA conference. Um, uh, actually, uh, we have created the uh, Viana process for Afghanistan for the past two years, and we have already uh, conducted three rounds of the Viana conference, and we have gathered uh, different uh, politicians, uh, members of civil society, members of um, medias and uh, uh, member of uh, uh, um, NRF and uh, other groups to come together and sit uh, around one table and discuss the future of Afghanistan and discuss how they can put uh, their forces together. And uh, uh, another thing, um, um, I believe that it's very important that I echo in this uh, uh, podcast that it's um, um, I believe that it's important to emphasize that the um, the primary goal is not to promote war within the country. We are not promoting war in the country. We want peace, and our focus is on seeking peace and reconciliation. However, uh, a key point to underscore is that if the Taliban are unwilling to agree. Uh, to the terms that lead to peace and inclusivity, what shall we do? What what are our options? Because for the past um, uh, two years and a half, a big group of our politicians, a big group of our civil society members are opposing the Taliban peacefully, our girls on the street demonstrating peacefully. We are trying to make conversation. We are trying to make uh, um, uh, I mean, like um, self-reflect and at the same time, like a, uh, we are trying to um, uh, build groups of different layer of the society to come together and to discuss the situation of Afghanistan. But right. unfortunately, Taliban are unwilling to come together and sit with us and to talk because they believe that they have gotten the power. 
And right now they have everything and why they should share uh, the power. And um, I think their argument is very naive because uh, that is not the question of uh, gaining power. It's the question of running the country. And if um, they or anyone else do not have the uh, intellectual capacity to run a country and to be a member of uh, United Nations, be a, a useful member of this world, so how they can hold the government, how they can govern the country. So that is the question. So I, I emphasize that we do not war, we do not promote the war, but if there is no um, option, uh, so um, I mean like... Um, we should have the option of war remains on the table. Yes. And uh, this uh, stance uh, reflects the, the uh, commitment to finding a peaceful resolution uh, while being uh, prepared to defend against any threats to the well-being and rights of our people. And I think we have this right to uh, self to, to establish a self-defense mechanism. What is our self-defense uh, mechanism? We do not have any. One is conversation and peace talks. We are ready to that. If not, so then what, what, should, what should we do? We just should uh, sit and see how we lose generations of people and how we lose our country. That is um, my point of view. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's really well said. And, and I think for for, you know, the American point of view and the Western point of view, what I say to people is if we don't responsibly get involved with this in a, in a way that's appropriate, we're going to end up in a situation where we are responding to a violent terror attack here at, in, in the United States or somewhere in the West with a high degree of emotion and anger and retribution and and that's going to be just bad for everybody because it's just going to be kind of a repeat of of that part and and you know it doesn't have to be that way you know there 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 is a way to to i believe uh support the resistance responsibly and play a position in the world to assist leaders like you who are resisting along all lines and you're great that's great that you call that out and i really appreciate it because a lot of people they particularly veterans they think resistance is 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 just armed resistance and that's part of it at times but in this case the the political resistance the civil society resistance the 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 the, the, the way that young girls are are advocating for the, just their rights uh through very brave protests um continuing to go to school like it's amazing but there's going to have to be some support from the rest of the world uh, to, to assist with this. I think it's just to, to ask the, the Afghan people to carry this load on their own um, is, is really heavy. So with that in mind, what message have we not conveyed to the rest of the world that you would like to convey on this podcast? That if, if someone watching or listening, what have we not said that really needs to be said? Uh, so there are uh, many things, but let me start from this point that uh, this uh, resistance forces and different uh, format of resistance, uh, as you said, we have the loads and we carry out these loads and we do not want international community to help us with that, but we need political support. Because, you know, like right now, um, the conversation of Afghanistan is kind of dying down. And whenever we want to try to make a conversation, we uh, 
I personally feel pressures, pressures on my shoulder whenever we want to say something and we see that many powers in the world, they do not have willingness to listen to us. Listen to us, listen to us and understand us. That is one message that we need to deliver to the world. And the world should understand the um, diverse nature of Afghanistan, which encompasses uh, various ethnic groups, um, ideologies, and mindsets. Uh, I want to emphasize the importance of approaching the situation with a nuanced understanding that acknowledges the uh, differences within the country. We are not like one ethnic group with one mindset. We have very different mindsets in the country. Like for myself, for um, uh, for generation, we have had uh, educated women in, in our families. And uh, until I was, uh, 18 years old, no, 20 years old, I have never had like a hijab or whatsoever. And all my, uh, all the people around me were like, just the same, like, like my family, educated, modern, and people from the city. And now everything has been changed. So I mean, like when uh, foreigners approach uh, Afghans, they should know the diversity of uh, Afghanistan. And additionally, I would like to highlight the uh, complexity of public sentiment. And while there are millions who do not uh, support the Taliban, fear um, often hinders them from expressing their disagreements openly. There are so many families that I'm in contact in Afghanistan. They want to leave the country. They do not want to stay under the Taliban rule, but they are calm and silent. They cannot do anything because they do not have any leverage and they cannot uh, stand the Taliban empty hands because they are empty hands and the Taliban have every means of terror and weapons on their hands. So um, uh, another uh, thing, actually, I already mentioned that, but let me just uh, emphasize once again that it's essential to recall the uh, universality of the Human Rights Declaration and recognize its applicability um, everywhere. Uh, serving as a reminder of our shared commitment to fundamental values. It's, uh, if, uh, if we believe in human rights, then human rights should be applicable everywhere in this world. And, um, the, these are my, my main, uh, messages to the world. And, uh, uh, right now I think. That was all I said. <laughs> well, that's okay, but those are great. And, you know, I have a feeling you and I will, will talk again and we'll, we'll have, you know, continue to find opportunities for you to put your message out to the world because, you know, that's, that's, that's my commitment is to continue to try to fight for a platform uh, for you and, and the other leaders that are doing this. Um, how can people support you and your mission who are watching this? Uh, to not recognize the Taliban uh, as the governments and as the nations, because that is the very step for us. Uh, if uh, international community recognize the Taliban, so then uh, we would uh, lose all our platforms. Right now, I have a platform in Vienna, but whenever uh, Austria or other EU members recognize the Taliban as a legitimate government in Afghanistan, then immediately I will lose my platform and my other ambassador fellows lose their platforms and uh, I don't want that 
happens. That is the very first thing. And the second thing, by listening to us, by cooperating with us, and uh, by giving us solutions, by brainstorming what we can uh, do together to change the situation in Afghanistan. These are the, um, uh, I believe that the um, um, main uh, message that uh, we can um, uh, deliver. Uh, Perfect, yes. Um, well, well, Madam Ambassador, we're right at the uh, we're right at the hour now. And, you know, I would like to just uh, wrap up by saying thank you for taking the time. Uh, I know you're extremely busy and and there are, I'm sure, so many veterans and military family members from the United States, from NATO listening to this who are deeply appreciative of you and what you're doing. And we have a lot of respect for you. We have a lot of respect for you because you're, you're standing up. Uh, against something that really needs to be stood up against. And uh, so, so, so grateful for you doing that and just a lot of admiration. And, you know, one of the things that I always tell people who don't have a lot of experience with Afghanistan or they, they make some comment about what they're seeing on the news and how it's kind of over. And the thing that I always say, and I hear a lot of other veterans say is don't count the Afghan people out. You know, the, that uh, the biggest mistake in the world you can make is to count the Afghan people out. And I believe that that chapter has not been written. I believe it will be written. And I believe there are better days ahead. And with leaders like you uh, leading, leading the charge, I, I know there will be. So we're always here if you need us. We're very, very grateful to you. Um, and I'll give you the last word. Uh, thank you so much indeed. Uh, I appreciate your great uh, work and actually I listened to your testimony in the parliament just uh, the other day and I watched one of your uh, uh, show and the work you're doing is great, meaningful and significant uh, in United States and for the people of Afghanistan and uh, uh, I'm sure and I hope that you continue this great job to um, uh, sh shed lights over the situation of Afghanistan and to tell the people the truth about the country because right now it's a world of different kind of propagandas and uh, fake news and all th those stuff and uh, you uh, portray the right picture of Afghanistan and thank you so much for that. Well, it's my honor and I hope to meet you in person one day. hope to get over to Austria and, uh, and meet you and then, you know, my ultimate dream is to take my wife and kids to Afghanistan one day and let them see that beautiful country for themselves. So, um, thank you. Hopefully, thank you. that day I will be in Afghanistan and host you there. That sounds fantastic. That sounds fantastic. Thanks to everybody for listening and watching uh, the Rooftop Podcast. If you get a chance, you know, sh share this with folks that could uh, could benefit from it. If you'd like to leave a review or a rating, you know, we'd appreciate that. Uh, in the meantime, remember that uh, fear is contagious, but leadership's a lot more contagious. Thanks for what you do, and I'll see you on the rooftop.